Let me pray for us. Reset our hearts and minds. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for mercy. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you, God, that you are good, that you are faithful, that you are true, and that, God, you have spoken a word of clarity for us. So speak to us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what I was talking about that you couldn't hear before is this notion of justice. You heard Joey pray for it just a moment ago. Um, we call out, even in these protests, these peaceful protests, which I've done myself, uh, we've used these phrases, no justice, no peace. We've quoted a lot these days, Micah 6, 8, uh, to uh, love, mercy, and do justice. But one of the things I think that's important for us to consider in the midst of this, these calls for justice, these right calls for justice, one of the things that we should do is to slow down and consider, are we ready for justice to come to us? That's what this passage is going to do. It's going to ask that question. It's going to define for us where justice comes from in the first place. So if you're if you're not a Christian and you're tuning into this, uh, I hope you'll see that justice comes from God and that justice is demanded between us and Him. And so this passage this morning is very weighty. It's a hard passage. We're going to talk a lot about judgment. We'll talk about heaven as well. But we come here. We've been walking through Luke now since last fall. And this is the passage we happen to come to today. Luke 12, 35 to 59. And remember, remember as we come into this passage, this passage that was just read for you, remember, just to orient us, we have been in this chapter, this passage for like a month. This is one message that Jesus gave. So just keep in mind that the context, remember Jesus said right back at the beginning of chapter 12 to beware of hypocrisy and to speak up for Christ. And he warned us, Jesus warned us of covetousness. And he warned us that we need to know that life is not found in the abundance of of possessions. He reminded us last week to not be anxious, but instead to seek the kingdom of God. Seek the kingdom of heaven. It's the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's the context that brings us into verse 35 down to uh, the end of the chapter. And the big idea this morning is very simple. Blessed are those that wait for the return of Christ. Cursed are those that don't wait. That's the passage. So Jesus says in this passage, there are essentially two kinds of people in the world. There are those that wait for his return and those that don't. And if you're unfamiliar with Christianity, you should know that Jesus Christ, we believe, is the Son of God, fully God and fully man, who came to the earth and as a sinless sacrifice, which we'll talk about, was uh, crucified, was buried, rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, plead the merits of his blood for his people, sends the Spirit, and we now await his return to come and bring in the final judgment to set up heaven on earth. That's what, when we talk about return, that's what we're talking about. Jesus comes to bring the final consummation. Jesus says there's two kinds of people in anticipation for that return. Verse 35 to 44 describes the people that are ready for that return. Verse 45 to 48 describes the people that are not ready for that return. So let's talk about that first group first, the ones that are ready. Again, Jesus tells them in verse 31, seek the kingdom. And then he says in verse 35, stay dressed, ready for action, and keep your lamps burning in order to anticipate that kingdom's complete arrival. It's already been started, 
It'll be finished upon Jesus' return. Wait for that. So the image here is like a soldier that's sleeping on his arms. He can wake up in a moment's notice and go to battle. He's ready. Unlike a soldier that maybe in the midst of warfare would sort of fall down, pitch a tent, put some paint on the walls of the tent, hang some pictures, lay some flooring, and kind of hang out. That's not the kind of picture that we're having here. We, as Christians, are understood to be these servants from the passage, these soldier servants. Jesus is our master. He's our general. We anticipate his arrival. And we have to be ready for that. Stay ready, which is to say be looking for it, be oriented by it, be hoping in it, wanting it. And what I hope that you'll do, beloved, is notice that Jesus feels the need to tell us about this. Notice that Jesus feels the need to tell us to stay awake. In other words, just like the anxiety and the other things and the covetousness, he understands that it's difficult for us to wait, to stay ready. He understands our our nature. He understands our inclination to get distracted, to get sleepy towards him and dream other dreams for ourselves. Just like he knew that there was a danger of hypocrisy and of life being found in the abundance of stuff, he knows the danger of falling asleep, of not hoping in Jesus' return. So he addresses it. That's the kindness of Jesus. But also he's warning us here in this passage to stay awake because he tells us very clearly his return is not going to come when anyone expects it. I don't know if you're anything like me, but normally when things get really bad, I'm thinking Jesus is going to come back. Well, that's probably the exact time he won't come back. Verse 39, Jesus tells the story of someone knowing when a thief was going to show up. In other words, he says there that if you knew that, if you knew when a thief was going to show up, you'd be ready. But the reality is, you don't know when the thief is coming. Which is to say, verse 40, he says, you have to stay ready for the Son of Man is coming at a time you do not expect. So it's unknown and it's unexpected. And Jesus uses that phrase in verse 40, Son of Man. Remember, That's an important phrase for us to know. Jesus is calling upon, the Son of Man is calling upon Daniel chapter 7, where Jesus is taking that title of the promised Son of God to come, and he's saying, I'm the one. Son of Man is this title for the anointed figure saying, I'm him. He's the Messiah. He's going to pay for sin, rise, and return. And God's will, when he returns, is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we don't know when he's returning. It will, it will come though, verse 42, at the proper time. Right? Just like we know that Jesus came in the fullness of time, so Jesus will return at the proper, or the fullness of time. And that's important to know because Jesus seems to be hinting, if you read between the lines a little bit, Jesus seems to be hinting, not only is it unknown and unexpected, it seems to be happening, it's gonna happen as a delay. There's gonna be this long delay. Otherwise, if it was gonna be really quick, why would he tell them to stay awake? Uh, But we also can catch some hints in this passage about the fact that there's going to be a delay since he talks about, he uses as metaphors the second or third watch of the night, late into the evening. Also in verse 45, he talks about the master being delayed. And so to sum up, kind of bring all this first part together, Jesus is returning, it's going to be a while, and when it happens, you won't be expecting it. So stay dressed, stay ready, don't fall asleep. In other words, Don't start dreaming other dreams. Stay attentive to the return of Christ. And once again, just as we have been seeing, what we find next is Jesus doesn't simply offer us commands without inspiring those commands. 
So beautiful He does how Jesus does this. We've been seeing this, right? We saw it last week. See it again today. Here Jesus does something that we might think is rare, but it's actually quite common. Jesus inspires us to stay ready for his return by making two promises that he will make good on in the future. See, I think we normally think of the Christian life being oriented by the past. And of course it is. We'll talk about that in a second. But Jesus understands he wants his forward orientation and he makes promises in the future. He's motivating present obedience by future rewards. And the first promise that he makes on that future reward is found in verse 37. It's so beautiful. So beautiful. Verse 37. Blessed are those that stay awake because for those that do, he, that is the master, will dress himself for service to you, Christian. That's amazing. And what Jesus is doing here is he's calling upon that great prophecy in Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, that when he returns, he will return. And beloved, those that are in Christ, he will serve you. This this is amazing to think about. We, We Of course, we know this is prefigured right in John 13 when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. Right, This is a, a preview of what is going to happen upon the return of Christ wherein Jesus serves those that are his. That's an amazing reality. Jesus is going to serve us. And remember, I, I remember Peter's like, no, 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 don't serve me. I need to be serving you. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your, if I don't wash you, you don't get washed at all, bro. And Jesus, and Peter says, well, then wash all of me then. But Jesus, upon his return, is going to serve us. The other future promise he uses to motivate obedience, present obedience, is in staying dressed for action is found in 42 to 44. And there he uses an illustration of a manager that stewards his master's estate well. Jesus says in verse 44, truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. The one that stewards well. You guys see what he's saying there? Jesus is saying that if you seek the kingdom, you stay dressed for action, you anticipate his return, and you're stewarding his creation, you're stewarding your time, your treasures, your talents, for the glory of his name, you're stewarding that well, waiting for his return. When he comes back, he says that he's going to grant you, beloved, that trust in Christ. He will grant you to help steward, manage his restored earth. What he says there, you... You did well with a little, therefore, in the consummated kingdom, I'll give you more. And the new heavens and new earth, beloved, you need to know this. So many of us lose sight of this. We are not going to be playing golf all the time, sipping lattes and going to the beach. In other words, the new heavens and new earth is not going to be this just prolonged, endless vacation. Nor is it going to be this prolonged, endless church service. Right? The reality is, in the new heavens and new earth, when Jesus comes back and sets up the restored earth, we'll get to the judgment in a minute, but right now we're speaking of those that trust him and wait upon him. When he returns, he will set up on earth as it is in heaven, and part of that is going to be this restoration or this recalling back to the way that God wanted it to be in the first place, namely to have humanity have dominion of the earth in a way that images God. And when Jesus returns, what he's saying in this steward parable is to show that we're going to do that. He's going to give us powers in the new heavens and new earth to oversee the earth, to help manage it. Right? Romans chapter 8, Paul says that since we are children of the Father, those that are in Christ, we are fellow heirs of that new Jerusalem with Christ. 
So we're fellow heirs of this restored earth with Christ. That's amazing truth. In Ephesians 1, right, Paul says that in Christ, we that are in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. What's our inheritance? You're walking on it. You're sitting on it right now. Uh, But it'll be perfectly restored and we will help oversee it. And in Isaiah 65, Jesus says, we find in the prophecy there, I should say, that in this restored earth, we're going to have jobs. We're going to be working. And it's going to be the greatest job you have ever had. It's going to be such a joy the whole time. And that's what Jesus is promising here. If we hope in Christ, treasure Christ, await his return, are found to look upon him, wait him, obeying him, trusting him, looking for his return, he will serve us at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and he will be giving us one of the most joyful jobs we have ever had by managing a restored earth, which is our inheritance in Christ. And Jesus uses these two images to motivate our vigilance to stay awake. Stay awake. These two future promises to motivate present day obedience. You remember, guys, what I talked about last week. God gives good gifts to his children. And he's given these two great gifts now. And he's anticipating that we will have them in their full consummation when he returns. And some of you have experienced this, right? I was thinking about this this week. Sometimes my parents would go away, like they would go away for a couple hours or whatever. They wouldn't tell us when they were coming back. And they said, but when we come back, if you guys are good, I'll take you to the park tomorrow. Or, you know, if we come back, we're not sure when we're coming back, but when we come back and we find that things are going good, then we'll listen, we'll take you to this or that. See, what they were doing, they were just borrowing from Jesus, your parents. They were just borrowing this notion of future Reward for present day obedience. Now, to be clear, heaven is not merited. You don't get all of these good gifts because you were so good. No, no. What we find, though, is that Jesus, though, is using those that are already his, that he's purchased, to inspire us to keep going. As one author says so well, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And so, most definitely, we don't earn heaven But we do make an effort to get there. I love the way that Jesus uses these beautiful promises to inspire present day obedience. I wonder how much you you have thought about this, beloved, to motivate your present day obedience. How much of you have actually done, like we talked about last week, considering ravens, considering lilies. This week, how many of you have thought about the fact that, like, I'm having trouble following Jesus, loving Jesus, obeying Jesus. And one of the ways I can do that is by considering these two things. Jesus is going to serve me. When he returns, and I'm going to get to oversee and manage part of the earth. Well, if you're not, these are two critical promises Jesus is giving you to help you stay awake. So we most definitely as Christians, we we do look back at the cross for our salvation. We have to. And we look to strength in the spirit to keep going. But you've got to know, beloved, that the Christian life is not primarily backwards focused. We look back in order to keep going forward. The Christian life is forward-focused. Right? Our orientation is just like Jesus. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. So it is with us. Here, Jesus is motivating our present obedience and this future orientation with these rewards. And so we look back at the cross. We look back, as it were, to the defeat of the Egyptians, and the defeat of our slavery. And now, here we are, walking through the wilderness, going towards the new Jerusalem. That's us. That's where we are. That's what we're doing. And Jesus tells us what awaits us if we keep going. 
we keep waiting upon Him. And so be blessed, Christian, by looking to your reward of Christ's service to you at the marriage supper of the Lamb. By your knowing that when you get home to the new Jerusalem, you will have dominion as managers of God's restored earth, as a co-heir with Christ. Blessed are you. But, for those that don't wait upon His return, those that do not hope in Jesus, those that are not striving by the grace of God to get home, looking to the eastern sky, hoping in Christ, to you, Jesus says, cursed are those that don't wait upon Him. Blessed are those that wait upon Him. Cursed are those that don't. That's where we spend the bulk of the rest of the way home here in this passage. Jesus continues his illustration of the manager or the steward of his estate. But in verse 45, he says that his manager, this manager, sorry, this manager, the one that does not stay dressed for action, he, this guy, this guy takes the opportunity of the, of the delay to poorly steward the resources that God has given him. We find in the passage, Jesus says that he beats his male and female servants. He eats the master's foods. He gets drunk, as it were, with wine. In other words, he uses God's resources. He uses what God has given him for himself. Jesus says that the master of that servant will come on a day, once again, when he won't expect it. He thinks he's got plenty of time to sort of clean up. But he doesn't. The master shows up and Jesus uses strict language here. And the master will cut him in pieces and place him with the unfaithful. The image here, friends, is to communicate that notion of justice. He's getting what he's deserving. At the return of Christ, this person, having taken advantage of what had been given to him, he will be held, she will be held, as it were, responsible for their unfaithfulness to God, for their not having faith in God, as is evidenced by their not being faithful to what he has given them. And justice will be served to this person. And we saw, and we find in verse 47 and 48, there's two kinds of people in the unfaithful camp that get the justice of God. Two kinds of people. There are ones that knew better and act rebelliously, and then there are those that are ignorant, and yet they still deserve judgment. Let's take that second one first. Jesus says in verse 48 that the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. In other words, a light judgment, light justice. Jesus here is addressing, friends, that question that so many of us sometimes ask. What happens to that person that doesn't hear the gospel? What is? What about that one that just doesn't know of the gospel of Jesus Christ? but the Christ, the King, and the Kingdom. See, the thinking of many goes that if God is a God of justice and He's a God of love and justice, well, therefore, since that person doesn't hear of the Gospel, God will be kind to that person and let them off the hook. He will give them a pass because they're innocent. They're innocent because they've done right all the time. They've not been an unfaithful steward. And so because of their ignorance, God will just give them a pass. And that, of course, is right. If a person in the jungles or remote regions of Africa or China or somewhere else in North Korea who never hears the gospel and is innocent of any wrongdoing, 
Will they get a pass and go to heaven, as it were? Well, the answer is yes. Right? The answer is yes. There's only one major problem with that. That Jesus addresses right here. There is no innocent person in North Korea. There is no innocent person in China. There is no innocent person in the jungles of Brazil or anywhere. No innocent person exists on planet Earth save one, Jesus the Christ, when he was here. Verse 48 makes crystal clear, even the ignorant do things that deserve punishment. Which, of course, calls upon the truth of Paul in Romans 3. All, not some, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. There is no innocent person, informed or ignorant, either one. And so Paul goes on to say in Romans 1 that on planet Earth, God has given this great evidence of his holiness in creation. Right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim his hands, his handiwork. And so therefore, this is why when we go and uncover some new civilization, we always find them worshiping some kind of a god. That's true of everywhere you go. And the other thing you'll notice, not only when you uncover some civilization, not only do you find them worshiping some kind of God, you also find them doing having some sort of sin-atoning element to their worship. Some kind of thing they feel like they need to do to kind of pass off or kind of move past what they've done wrong in the eyes of God. And that also is taught in Romans, where Paul says that we all, even if we're ignorant of the gospel, are a law unto ourselves. In other words, we know that we do wrong. The question is, I think Jesus is begging here, is what is it you're going to atone in? Who is it you are going to trust in? Not atone in. Who are you going to trust in to assuage what you have done wrong? To push past, to uh, pay for what you've done wrong? Who or what are you going to trust in? And we've got this wonderful story in particular in the book of Acts where you have this person that was ignorant of the gospel at the time by the name of Cornelius. And yet he was a God-fearing man. And what do we find? God never loses any of whom he has paid for. And he finds a way to send Peter out there to Cornelius and he preaches the gospel to him and Cornelius and others believe. And that's still true today. God will not lose any. Jesus makes that promise in John 6. He loses none. There will be no one in hell that will be able to say, if I'd have only heard, then I would have believed. No one will be able to say that. And so for the one that does not hear the gospel, goes on worshiping a false god and believing they can atone for their own sin, not crying out to God, God, would you please deliver me out of my own sin? Well, that person will still receive a punishment, but since they were ignorant, they will receive a lighter penalty in hell, which communicates God's perfect justice. In other words, he, his justice for wrongdoing is uh, meeting out its appropriate to the person. But for those that do know better, that's you and I, by the way. That's basically everybody that's watching this right now. Unless somehow you're hearing the gospel for the very first time and you've never heard it before, never heard the Bible taught before, these kinds of things. Well, welcome, first off, if that's you. More than likely... Most everyone, if not everyone watching this, is described in this second one. The ones that know better. Those that have been taught the gospel. Those that have heard of Christ. Those that have heard the call to repent and believe and follow Jesus. 
We've been taught the Bible at some level. We, we know the stories, and yet we're hypocrites at some level. We're clean on the outside, dirty on the end, unwilling to follow the Lord. Unwilling to steward, to be faithful in, so, in the sense of having faith in Christ and then try, by the grace of God, repenting and believing, be faithful with the stuff in front of us. Jesus says that they reserve a greater penalty because everyone to whom much is given, much will be expected. Much has been expected. Much has been given, I should say, to you, beloved. The very fact that you've been close enough to hear the Bible taught so many times, that's a good gift from God. And everyone to whom much is given, much will be required. So since they rejected the offer of the free gift of God's only son for their sin, I want you to think about it. That's what's going on. They unwilling to submit to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the very own son of the father. As is evidenced by their going on treasuring other things, by their evidence, by using God's resources for themselves. Since they endeavored to use God's resources for themselves, they are then indifferent towards the gospel at some level. They know the truth, and yet they don't care enough to do anything about it. Consequently, they receive a harsher penalty in hell. They fail to steward what God gave them. They fail to love God and love their neighbor as themselves. Therefore, God gives them what they deserve. God gives them justice. And so, friends, I hope you see that our yearning for justice is right. We have to be so careful to know where we stand in relation to God's justice, the God of justice. And I realize that some of you may be thinking, Jesus is being a little harsh here. But if you're thinking that, I would ask a question in response to that. On what standard outside of Christ are you saying Jesus is being harsh in relation to? What's the standard you're comparing saying Jesus doesn't fit that standard? What's that standard? It can't, the standard can't be arbitrary. What's the standard that you say that he's not being arbitrary or he's not being fair to? See, the reality is, friends, God is being faithful to us. He's revealed his will to us. And that's why this passage is actually, as hard as it is, it's actually evidence of God's kindness to us. It's God's kindness to us in three ways. One, listen to me. One, he tells us what the standard is. His holiness, that's the standard. And if you want to kind of list for it, then go look at the Ten Commandments, keeping that perfectly. He told us it's kind of God to give us the standard. Secondly, it's kind of God to warn us of the fact that we don't meet that standard. He didn't have to do that, but he does in kindness. He warns us of the standard. And the third thing that is gracious about this is he makes a way out of that penalty in Christ. Not as an insurance policy, right? Not as hypocrites, but as a greater treasure than everything else. And so if you choose to reject the treasure of God's only son by your unwillingness to repent and believe and become then a doer of the word, God's perfect justice will be meted out on you, friend. And this, this is why Jesus came in part. To make these distinctions clear. And that's what Jesus says next. He came to make these divisions of the faithful and the unfaithful clear. Take a look at verse 49 to 53. Jesus says there that he came to cause division and to cast fire on the earth. Now, I realize that for some of you, you read these verses and you don't like them or they make you uncomfortable or they don't sound like the 
meek and mild Jesus that you're used to hearing. But you need to notice, friends, he's speaking to people, going out of the last context, what we just considered, he's speaking to people that are simply unwilling to take up their cross and follow Christ. But instead, they want to go their own way. Jesus says in verse 49, he comes to cast fire on the earth and it's his great distress to bring it about, to accomplish it. And then that provocative question, do you think I have come to give peace on earth? And all of us are thinking, yes. But he says, no, I have not come to cause peace, but division. And I think the reason why this is jarring for us is because so many of us at Christmas time get those Christmas cards with a little baby boy in a manger. And up above on the top, it says, peace on earth. That, of course, recounts the singing of the angels to the shepherds and they're keeping watch of their flocks by night, where they sang, peace on earth, except that's not exactly what they said. That translation comes from the King James Version, which is not entirely clear until you get to the more exacerbated portions of, te- of the text that we find every other Bible translation translated wherein the angels actually say, the text says, the text actually says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. They quantify, the angels quantify and rejoice in the ones that are singing about peace. You can see that in the ESV translation. You can see that in every other translation uh, other than that King James Version. And I would argue it's still there in the King James Version. You just have a more clear understanding in the rest of Scripture. So there's a qualifier to those of whom he's pleased, peace to them. And so presumably, if Christ is bringing peace to a particular people, what does that assume? They do assume that he's come to not cause peace to another group of people that are not those people. And that's what Jesus says here. He does come to bring peace to those of whom he is pleased, those who love, he loved them, and trust him and follow him by grace. But there's a whole lot of folks that don't. Jesus says, wide is the gate that leads to destruction and most will enter it. And so it's only natural then if he came to bring peace to those people, to his own people, then therefore he doesn't bring peace to this other group, this unfaithful group. And this division that Jesus has come for is a sign for those who stand under the fire that Jesus comes to cast on the earth. Now if you're wondering what that is, we'll go back with us last fall to Luke 3. Remember, Jesus was baptized by John the baptizer. And so we have the same things happening, baptism happening, and you're going to see fire come up again. Listen to what John said of Jesus. I baptize you, this is John, uh, Luke 3, 16 and 17. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. That's Jesus. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Two things. And then he explains. John explains the two. His winnowing fork is in his hand. There it is. He's going to divide. He's describing the same thing. What's he going to do? To clear the his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. There's the peace for his people. That's the baptism of the Spirit. Then he goes on to say, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable, same word, fire. Gather the wheat in, the chaff gets burned. That's what Jesus comes to do, John says. And now Jesus is saying the same thing. This is the same fire that Jesus is speaking of here since they are both in reference to baptism. It's the fires, friends, of judgment. And notice here, don't lose sight of this. 
that Jesus is also baptized himself in these fires. This is shocking. Verse 49, he says that he came to cast fire on the earth. And then in verse 50, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with in relation to those fires. Jesus will baptize the earth in the fires of judgment, which is justice served. And he will baptize, he will be baptized himself in fire. And that's causing him, these things are causing him great distress. Now, just so you think that Jesus is not disobeying the very thing that he just said not to do, don't be anxious. That word's probably better rendered, he's occupied, he's afflicted in his mind with these thoughts. And he wants, in other words, he wants this to come. Would that it was already kindled, he said. Remember in Luke 9, go back to Luke 9, Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem now. So Jesus just wants this to come about. It's the whole reason he came. To bring up this division, make it clear, purchase his own, make clear those that are not. And so to kind of sum up all of this, again, Jesus says he comes to the earth not to cause peace, but division. What's the division? Well, to separate the wheat from the chaff, to faithful from the unfaithful. We think back to Simeon's words when it was said of that child that he's going to be this great revealer. So the division is this fiery judgment on those that are not baptized by the Holy Spirit. That's those poor stewards we thought about. Those ones that are unfaithful, that don't have faith. Uh, in a word, it is those that are not his, those that have not repented and believed and followed Christ. They are not staying awake. They're not prepared for action. And instead, they're doing what they want. They're beating servants. They're getting drunk. They're doing all of this. They stand to receive the just penalty for their unbelief. You say, okay, Nathan, what about Jesus' baptism of fire? What's that about? Well, friend, this is the amazing truth of the gospel. This is how Jesus' people find true and everlasting peace. Jesus, the one who knew no sin. The one that did not deserve. He was entirely blessed, but instead was cursed for us that believe. There on the cross, when Christ utters those words, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There, Jesus is absorbing the just penalty for my sins and for the sins of all those that trust Him and treasure Him. There, Jesus is absorbing the just anger for our sin, satisfying the penalty that was due to fall upon us. We deserve, Nathan Knight deserves the penalty of the fire to come on him. And yet Christ goes to the cross and says, I'll take it. That's what, that's the baptism Jesus is referencing there. Stunning reality. Friends, we have to know, God could not just sweep sin under the, under the rug, as it were, and just sort of forget about it. Because if He were to do that, God could not be a God of justice, could not be a God of love and justice, if He just sweeps sin under the rug and says, forget about it. Just imagine a judge who finds a murderer guilty and then says, eh, don't worry about it. You're guilty, but don't worry about the penalty. How would the family of that murdered person feel? Right? This is what we're calling with. This is what we're crying out rightfully for in our streets in these days. We want justice. That family would have feel as though justice was not served, and they would have been right. 
A penalty has to come. Has to be satisfied. And so this amazing truth that Jesus is teaching of his baptism. Here he is referencing the substitutionary sacrifice for the sinner who believes. He satisfies our penalty on the cross. Satisfies the penalty of justice served. And it all happens by grace. Jesus is baptized with the fires of judgment in place of the one who treasures him. This is the technical term for this is penal substitutionary atonement. That's what's happening in Jesus' baptism. It's the heart of the gospel. Propitiation is another word for that. Quenching the wrath of God, the fires of God for our sin. This is also in part why Jesus comes. This is the heart of it. To bring peace to his people through his own baptism of fire on the cross for their sins and to not bring peace, but instead division, judgment, justice to those that are unwilling to follow Jesus. And Jesus is distressed to bring it all about on the cross and in the resurrection. He wants it to happen. One verse I think sums all of this up that I just said. What Jesus says in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. There's the peace. Whoever does not obey the Son, that's that poor stewardship, not trusting God and stewarding what God has given them. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath or the fires of God remains on him. And by the way, that's right after, that's the same conversation of John 3.16. And there, friends, we get a fuller understanding of this phrase we've heard a lot. No justice, no peace. If you do not trust in justice for yourself at the cross, then you have no peace with God. And justice is left to be served by you at the return of Christ. This is the heart of Jesus' ministry of purchasing and revealing the faithful and the unfaithful. And this is why Jesus says that from now on, there's going to be division at the most basic of united levels. In the family. That's why Jesus uses those illustrations of family. Everybody assumes that at the family there's going to be unification. So he uses that to say that my peace and my division is going to strike at the place where nobody would expect it would. All the way down to families. And he lists out all those different things there. And I realize that for some of our members that are watching this right now, you've experienced this division in your family. Some of you do not look forward to Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners because of your faith in Christ and what happens at those dinners. We've had members of our church that have literally been shut out from their family because of their faith in Christ and what it's done, the division that it's caused. And of course, if there are divisions at the most basic element of civilization in the family, then, beloved, we have to expect that there will be division at every other level outside of that. Friend groups, schools, governments, jobs. If there's division in family, you better expect there to be division all the more in those other groups. And remember, this is why Jesus came. To make clear who stands where. To make clear who's ready and who's not. To make clear who has the peace of Christ and who doesn't. To make clear who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and who is a citizen of the kingdom of earth. To clear up kindly, by the way, 
in advance of his return to make clear where we stand. And therefore, beloved, we should not be surprised when the world hates us, when the world persecutes us, when the world makes fun of us, when the world tries to intimidate us, to threaten us. Listen, this is normal. That's what we've seen for 2,000 years in church history. But more importantly, it's what we see here in the text. This is not a failure, this division. When we feel that division, it is not a failure of gospel ministry. This is what gospel ministry does. In part, the earth, as it were, is ours. Remember I said it's our inheritance. But its present administration, the present administration of the earth, is opposed to our greatest treasure. It put him up on a cross. And we here in America are increasingly feeling this division, aren't we? We are increasingly being forced to make clear where our treasure really lies. What our theology really is. Who we really believe Jesus to be and how is it we're stewarding those things and how we go about that. It's getting more and more clear as to where our allegiance really lies. See, for the last 200 plus years, Christians have been living in this dream of being Christians and calling our world on a kind of as a kind of home team. But we're not the home team. We we read about this deceiver in the Bible, Satan, the God of this world. So there used to be in America and in some ways there still is this social advantage of calling yourself a Christian. Of joining a church, of uh, having offices in the church. But now much of that is slowly eroding. And friends, you need to know, beloved, you need to know, this is not the absence of God. It is the kindness of God to bring His justice in in order to divide and make crystal clear in advance of His final judgment where people stand. And the words of Peter, as he says, do not, 1 Peter 4, do not be surprised when fiery trials come upon you as though something strange were happening. And he goes on to say, but rejoice when the trials and sufferings come on you in this world, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Why? That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He's talking about the same thing, the return of Christ. When Jesus' glory is revealed for who he is on the earth. You rejoice when you go through that and you stay dressed for action instead of capitulating and living for the world. And so as the cost of following Christ gets higher and higher and we are all exposed and revealed for who we really are and where our citizenship lies, therefore, friends, it is of the utmost importance to interpret the times and see where we fall. That's what comes next. Take a look, verse 54 to 56. Interpret the time, see where we fall. That's so important. Since all this division's coming in, it's getting hotter. We gotta make sure and interpret the time to see where we stand. Notice in these verses, 54 to 56, notice Jesus has turned from speaking from the, to the disciples. Now he's speaking to the crowds. And he calls out their hypocrisy by saying, in essence, you guys got the weather Doppler 500. And you know when thunderstorms are coming and hurricanes are coming and tornadoes are coming. But you don't take the time to know me. Who I am, what I'm about. The promises, he, we can imagine Jesus saying sort of this, that the, the promises of a hundred years is right in front of you. And you take the name of God's people. And yet you don't see me that I am the answer to these promises. You want to play around with me, Jesus is saying in essence. 
You want to use me. You want to be entertained by them. You want to listen to me, but you don't want to follow me. And even though I'm right here in front of you, you can interpret all these other things, but the one of whom you're supposed to wait on is right in front of you and you can't see it. You, you like being around me, but you don't want to follow me. They're not interpreting. They can interpret other stuff. They're not taking the time to interpret Christ. And listen, beloved, for us, Restoration Church, the temptation is the same for us. We can do thermodynamics. We can send people to the International Space Station. We can hash out atoms and molecules and the like. But do we take the time to interpret Christ and where we stand in relation to him? Do we do that amidst our own times? I shudder to think. It gives me grief knowing this. No pride. I shudder to think of the many that are calling for justice that have never slowed down to interpret Christ and know where they stand in relation to God, to the God of justice. I shudder to think of the many who want justice but have never taken the time to consider Christ and the revelation of Christ in his kingdom and where they stand in relation to it. And I can't help but think that this isn't in part, a machination of the evil one. Remember what Paul says, that we do not war against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the principalities, in this present darkness. Remember, beloved, remember that Satan is known. He's one most common thing he's known for. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He's said to be an angel of light, posing as goodness, but in fact has darkness all behind him. The chief of hypocrites. He takes that which God has made good and twists it. He gets people to plead for justice, as it were, and yet never take the time to have them to meaningfully wonder where they stand in relation to justice. And what's worse is Satan does some of his best work in the church. You remember those religious hypocrites Jesus warned the disciples about earlier? Here Jesus does it again, but this time he calls the Israelites as a whole as hypocrites. Because they take the time to interpret whether... And they take the name of God's people and yet they don't take the time to interpret God's son. They're entertained by him, but they don't treasure him. How many people today take the name of Christian and yet do not follow Christ? How many are deceived? How many are hypocrites? How many believe they are at peace with God when they are not? as is evidenced by the fact that they don't take the time to interpret the real Christ and his kingdom, as is evidenced by their not waiting on Jesus, staying dressed for actions, as is evidenced by them not stewarding what God has given them, but instead using what God has given them for themselves. Using phrases like justice, yet never considering where they stand in relation to the God of justice themselves. It breaks my heart to think about this people. But we're not going to do that at this church. We're not going to be fuzzy. We're not going to be unclear on interpreting Christ and where people stand in relation to Christ at this church. We are going to do the hard work of daily, weekly interpreting Jesus amidst these times making clear who he is, who Jesus is, and where we stand in relation to him in advance of his return or our deaths. That's what we're going to do here at the heart of Restoration Church. We're going to work on this as best we can. So, beloved, I want you to think about this. 
Do you know that one of the most important ways that you can do justice is by making as clear as you can, as we can, what a Christian is and what a Christian isn't? And then secondly, one of the best ways we can do justice is doing the best way that we can to lovingly and humbly help people see where they are in relation to that Jesus in advance of his coming to administer justice. And the way that we do that at this church is by teaching the gospel clearly and regularly and preaching it to ourselves week after week. And then secondly, the way we do that to administer as to who has it and who doesn't is by properly administering baptism and the Lord's Supper. We say this so many times. I know, I know you guys think we're crazy when we say the first hour of members members meetings are the most important hour. I realize they feel boring. I realize they feel as though nothing is happening, but it is so critical in doing this work of justice. Jesus staked so much on giving the spirit to his people, giving them the keys of the kingdom to then bind on earth as it is in heaven. That is so critical. That's one of the most important things that he's done now in advance of his return to give the keys of the kingdom to his people so that they would gather together and exercise those keys on the proper subjects to make clear which camp people are in in advance of his return. And by doing so, when we do this humbly and lovingly and faithfully in advance of Jesus's return, we do justice. We glorify Christ. We love our neighbor. And I want to be clear, we don't do that work of binding and loosing with our keys. We don't do that because we're smarter than everybody else. (laughs) I don't need to rehearse. I'm often the dumbest guy in the room when our church is gathered together. We don't do that because we're so much smarter or better than people. No, we are considered fools for Christ's sake. It is by His grace that He has given us His Spirit to do these two critical things in the work of justice. To reveal what the gospel is and isn't, that's the interpretation And to reveal by God's grace who has the gospel and who doesn't. That's the unfaithful or the faithful. That's what the church does at the most basic level. That's what I'm doing right now, literally. And so if you want to do justice as a, if you want to do justice as a Christian, join a church. And lovingly and faithfully guard the teaching ministry of the church and those that are in keeping to that teaching. This is the most fundamental work of justice on the earth. It's not the only thing. There's a hundred more things that we need to do, or can do, I should say. But just try and imagine, just thought experiment for a moment. Try and imagine if every gospel, so-called gospel-believing church in the antebellum south would have done this, how things would be different. Try and imagine if instead of coddling men and women, let's say, that We're taking men and women and trafficking them and beating them and abusing them. If instead of coddling that and giving them the Lord's Supper, they instead did what Christ has told them to do, namely to make out this, make clear who's the unfaithful and who the faithful is so as to expose, keep them from the Lord's Supper, keep them, excommunicate them from the church so as to make clear to the society and the believing people that's wicked, that's evil, this is right. What if every church in the South would have done that? Imagine the change that could have come. The reality is so much of the church failed. They failed the church, failed those people. And when they died, they faced the fires of judgment. May we not do the same to our people. 
May we love people by doing justice to them at the most basic level, interpreting for them the true gospel and where they stand in relation to that gospel by our carefully and humbly administering baptism and Lord's Supper to the proper subjects. So guys, this is what church membership is about. I know you guys think, some people think, that, like church membership is this 21st century American uh, invention, but it's not. It's right here. God has given us the keys to make to do this work in advance of Jesus' return. And so it's imperative to you and I, friend, to not wait and to then get right with God now while we can. And that's exactly what comes next in verse 57 to 59, this last passages. This conversation between the judge and the accuser. Jesus is saying in that passage, in essence, why wait to settle up with your accuser in the presence of the judge when you can settle up with your accuser now in advance of the judge? Because the reality is you might get to the judge and the judge throws you in jail forever. Get right with the accuser now. In other words, get right with God now. Friend, I'm speaking to you that if you don't know Jesus, get right with God now while you can. In advance of your death or the return of Christ, which we don't know when's going to be. You see what comes next. Joey will preach on this next week. Luke 13, where Jesus talks about this notion of repentance. That's how we get right with God. Turning from our sin, turning towards Jesus. Trusting and treasuring him because he's good enough. He's great enough. He's powerful enough to have you get out of judgment and into his loving arms. But friend, if you won't, if you won't settle up now and you wait to meet the judge, the reality is you don't know. Many people say, I'll get that, I'll sort of work on that later before I die. No, we don't know when that's going to be. We don't know when the return of Christ comes. Don't wait. Because the reality is, if you don't trust in Christ, you'll be left to go into the prison and pay every penny, as Jesus says. In other words, get the fullness of justice. And so that's the takeaway for us this morning. I realize that we talked a lot, we talked about a lot of things today. It's a big passage. And we talked about a lot of things that are hard. But I hope you see the kindness of God in the midst of this. To put this in the Bible. To give us the church to make these things clear to us. To plead with each other. To walk away from stewarding life the way you want to and walk towards the life of Christ. I hope you see the beauty of Christ to not only give you these passages and warn you, but also to promise you, for those that do, He will serve you. He will give you power in the new heavens and new earth because He loves you and you have an inheritance with Him. And I hope you see, for those that are not believing, He's kind to warn you in advance to know where you stand. And so I pray, if you're not a Christian, if you're wondering if you're a Christian, Either way, talk to somebody. Or more importantly, talk to God. Get right with your accuser now while you can. As I heard one pastor say one time in sharing the gospel to a taxi cab driver, hell is long, life is short. Get right with Jesus now. Not as an insurance policy, but as a good treasure. You see the treasure of Christ that He's willing to share these things with you and plead with you to come. But for the rest of us that have uh, trusted we are staying dressed for action, listen, may we help each other when we get drowsy. You're probably getting drowsy right now from this long sermon. <laughs> may we help each other when we get drowsy, when we're not staying awake, waiting for our master. May we help each other. And also, may we 
boldly share the good news with people. We don't know when Jesus is returning. We don't know when their death is. So may we be an evangelistic people, not to sort of get people into our club, but to get them out of the fires of judgment and into the love of Christ. May that be true of us. Because the reality is, folks, we must stay awake because He's going to knock. And we don't know when it's going to be. It might be this afternoon. May we stay awake. May we be ready. May we trust Him. So that when we see Him, all of our sufferings and strivings will end. And we will be with Him forever. The God of justice. The one that stood in the fire for us. So let's pray to Him now. Jesus, we praise you because you're kind enough to tell us these things. We praise you because you love us enough to give us future promises to press us on. You didn't have to do that, but you did. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the fire on your back for all those that believe. Thank you for giving us warning passages so as to see uh, the urgency, so as to warn people that are not walking right to get right with you now while they can. Thank you, God, that you're a God like this. May your justice be meted out, Lord, in the way that you see fit. We know and trust that you'll do that just right. And we love you and thank you for the hope of Christ amidst that day that comes. We pray it would be soon. We ask it in Jesus' name.